0: Welcome to Mike's Notes, episode 43. Today, I want to look at four things about Amazon.com. These notes come from a pair of articles that I wrote on Medium about how I see Amazon fitting into the larger role of the economy, some theories that explain it, and then what the big reaction to my blog posts were. So the first major point was a blog post I wrote comparing how Amazon evolved to Clayton Christensen's theory of disruption. If you aren't familiar with the theory of disruption, it goes something like this, where each organization has to make allocation choices for their resources. Some organizations that are leading their industries will typically make what are called sustaining organizations. So they find a way to better serve their existing customers. They don't change things in a dramatic way. And other organizations are disruptors. They provide something in a totally new way, oftentimes when a leading organization lets them have it. So a typical example is the steel mills that Christensen studied. And there were these big steel mills that didn't really want to make rebar. They made rebar, but it was their lowest margin product. Along came a bunch of mini mills. The mini mills made the rebar. And the established steel mills, they didn't think that they had to challenge them. They just sort of gave away that segment of the business. Well, what ultimately happened was those mini mills got good at rebar. And then they got good at the next thing. And then the next thing. And the next thing. And the disruptors are successful because the things that the customers want change. Customers' desires aren't static. Customers don't hire an organization to do a job and expect the job to be done in the same way over and over again. So that's where disruption comes up. Amazon, as outlined in the book The Everything Store, really fits with this disruption theory that I wrote about. Disruption theory is a process by which a product or service takes root initially in simple applications at the bottom of a market and then relentlessly moves up market, eventually displacing established competitors. That's how Clayton Christensen explains disruption theory. And this theory makes sense if we go back to our steel mill example that... You want to move up the value chain if you're an established manager. You want to do things that serve your existing customers. It really makes internal sense for an organization not to be disruptive, to focus on sustaining innovation. So it makes sense to let the pups have the scraps. The problem is is when the pups are full grown and then better at the new job. Often organizations see this too late. They cross an event horizon without realizing what happens. A lot of disruption happens when the established players, when the entrenched interests are most profitable. In The Everything Store, Brad Stone writes this about uh, the early discussions between Barnes and Noble and Amazon and how the former looked at the latter. Now Barnes and Noble was faced with must have seemed like a pipsqueak upstart. Amazon had a measly 16 million in sales in 1996. Barnes and Noble notched 2 billion in sales that same year. So what we have here is the established player, the um, entrenched leader in the market. Barnes and Noble is having a huge uh, advantage in sales. But Amazon is going to pass them by so quickly because the jobs the customers want aren't the jobs that Barnes & Noble can easily provide. This is what Clayton Christensen writes. The leading firms in established technology remain financially strong until the disruptive technology is, in fact, in the midst of the mainstream market. So even though the financial numbers look good, financial numbers are laggards. And those will be the last things to tell you. There are ways to successfully engage with disruptors. One technique is to spin out a segment to chase down the newbie. That is to move it out of the house, to create a new team with new metrics that can adapt to the new situation. But this has to be moved externally because if you keep it internal, you just won't do it. Again, from the book. Bezos had predicted that the chain retailer would have trouble seriously competing online. And in the end, he was right. The Rigoses were reluctant to lose money on a relatively small part of their business and didn't want to put their most resourceful employees behind an effort that would siphon sales away from the more profitable stores. So here again we see disruption theory in that the newbie, that is Amazon in this case, is willing to lose money in certain areas or is willing to choose areas that don't have the fat profits that another area might have that an entrenched company would like to guard. This is how Clayton Christensen puts it. A company must deliver the rate of growth that the market is projecting just to keep its stock price from falling. So Barnes and Noble would have been pressured by the market to keep up their fat margins and their earnings and not to take this step backward when the stock market was expecting them to step forward. This reminds me of when you see a fight and you're watching it and you see that one person is clearly willing to do anything to win. That's what uh, Bezos is. Clayton Christensen addresses this too in his books. Disruption works because it is much easier to beat competitors when they are motivated to flee rather than fight. That's what Barnes & Noble did. They weren't willing to fight in this digital domain with highly discount books. Even when we study a situation and we recognize the patterns and we have the right sets of teachers, it's hard to identify these sorts of things as they're happening. In 1997, Jeff Bezos flew to Boston to give a presentation to Harvard Business School and he talked to this class called Managing the Market Space. And afterwards, graduate students asked him questions and talked To him about Amazon's future, and they voted at the end of the hour to see if Amazon was going to survive. And the consensus was that they wouldn't. Ironically, Clayton Christensen had arrived to teach at Harvard in 1992, so this was five years into his experience there of developing and thinking about the theory of disruption, and they still uh, didn't get it. The students still weren't literate enough with this theory that they could understand it and see it when it was literally. In their classroom. The second major thing from the article, well, the second, third, and fourth major things from the article was the feedback I got from it. It was shared on Twitter by Ben Carlson, which really flooded my notifications tab on the website. What I thought was going to happen was that someone would tell me a nuance or an angle of disruption theory that I didn't understand and that they would correct me and guide me down the right road. I've read three of Christensen's books, but I've read them only one time each. And so my understanding of disruption theory isn't what it is, especially when you compare it to what some of the people on the internet know. But the feedback was about a few other things. First, it was the uh, general consensus that Harvard MBAs aren't that smart. Second was that Amazon succeeded Not necessarily because of disruption theory, but a few other things. And the third was that Bezos was a maniac. So let's dive into those a little deeper. Number one, how many Harvard MBAs does it take to change a light bulb? This theme surprised me most of all. People on Twitter, to put it lightly, don't have a high regard for Harvard MBAs. In defense of the MBAs, they weren't the only ones to miss Amazon. Also, Bezos eventually hired some of those students that he talked to. Early employees missed the value too, leaving before they were fully vested. Friends and family passed on a mere $50,000 investment that would have yielded tenfold results within a few years. A lot of people missed the ground floor entry, even though Bezos was holding the door open. So the question is, why did generally smart, well-educated, learned people get Amazon so wrong? I think it's because it's hard to get right. Right now, there's another Amazon growing, and it's not Snapchat. If you think it's Snapchat, you're too late for the party. As Howard Marks wrote, once an opportunity is bantered about, it's not a good opportunity anymore. Something is out there, though. It's in some garage. It's always in a garage. Someone is making something that in 10 years, we'll use every single day. Bezos' own inspiration, Sam Walton, wrote about this, and Bezos used Walton's words... To recruit people from Walmart to Amazon. This is what Walton wrote in his book. Could a Walmart type story still occur in this day and age? My answer is of course, it could happen again. Somewhere out there right now, there's someone, probably hundreds of someone, with good enough ideas to go all the way. It will be done again, over and over, providing someone wants it badly enough to do what it takes to get there. So what company will disrupt Facebook and Google and GE and Amazon? I don't know. You probably don't know either. Harvard MBAs don't know. In fact, it might be the case that Harvard MBAs shouldn't know. You look up their curriculum on the internet, and it's a fine curriculum. It looks like it's a well-rounded series of classes that will educate someone really well. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't prime students to start startups. If it did, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg never would have left. The Harvard MBA prepares students for many things, but it doesn't prioritize the identification of successful technology startups. In fact, the students are probably trained to see the holes. They're probably trained to ask what could go wrong and to see how is this thing different from the thing that I'm learning. But if we look at the theory of disruption, we can see that The specific things that make a disruption possible are things that an incumbent couldn't do. So in a sense, if you study the successful companies, you're studying the entrenched and established leaders of an industry. But if disruption occurs, those are the worst examples that you can have. There's a joke on the internet that it only takes one Harvard MBA to change a light bulb, but they stand in the room and wait for the world to revolve around them. That's probably a little unfair. A Harvard MBA can change a light bulb. Not only that, they can figure out how the light bulb got to the store, the manufacturing costs, and the marketing campaign. Harvard MBAs can do many things. What they won't do is be visionaries, who see the future and start companies. Harvard MBAs are like altar boys. They help with the mass, but it's people like Bezos that preach the message. The second bit of feedback I got from my initial article on Disruption is that Amazon was this combination of luck and skill and timing and margins and management and the whole nine yards. And I just want to focus on one segment of that, and that's luck and skill. Amazon was lucky. So was every other success. I liked most how Zach Lowe put it after the Warriors won the 2015 NBA title. This is what Lowe wrote. Yep, the Warriors got lucky. They suffered no major injuries, beat teams that did, and got through the West without facing the Clippers or Spurs. Guess who else got lucky? Every other team to ever win the championship. Pick any playoff season, literally any season, and you'll find multiple injuries that tilted the championship odds. Sometimes those injuries were minor, temporary dings to a few key role players. Sometimes they were career-threatening injuries to stars. So Lowe points out here that everyone gets lucky and we can take this example from the NBA and we can pass it to anything else. When Chuck Klosterman was on the James Altucher show, he pointed out how lucky he got. He got an opportunity to write for a newspaper after he graduated college that wasn't available the year before or the year after. So if Klosterman was a year different in his graduating timeline, he would have had a totally different career arc, and one that he probably uh, would not choose over what has actually happened. The model I use to figuring out this difference between skill and luck is called the two-jar model that Michael Mobison introduces in the book The Success Equation. Mobison writes that each outcome is a combination of skill and luck draws. The more skill you have, the more bad luck you can offset. Sometimes you get fortunate and draw good luck and high skill. That's what happened for Bezos. Bezos worked hard, negotiated brilliantly, and knew the Internet was coming. After the IPO roadshow, there's a seven-week quiet period mandated by the SEC when Bezos couldn't talk to the press. Stone writes that this was actually painful for him. I can't believe we have to delay our business by seven years, he complained, equating weeks to years because he believed that the internet was evolving at such an accelerated rate. When orders got backed up around Christmas time, in the early days, Bezos and crew began a Save Santa program where each employee picked up a third shift to pack boxes for shipment. That's skill, too, to figure that out. Amazon has also developed models where they pay their suppliers at a different time frame than they play get paid by their customers so there's many things amazon did that were skillful and there are many things that happened to amazon that were lucky bezos picked the right industry at the right time he set up his company to do things a certain way he got financing before the dot-com bubble popped more things went right for amazon than went wrong some of that was skill and some of that was luck the third major feedback I got on Twitter about the original disruption article was that Jeff Bezos is a maniac and this is really true This is the one that resonated with me the most through the first 100 pages of Brad Stone's the everything store I have six notes under the heading workaholic. This is what Stone writes about the time before Amazon Bezos was in his mid-twenties at the time, five foot eight inches tall, already balding, with the pasty, rumpled appearance of a committed workaholic. He had spent five years on Wall Street and impressed seemingly everyone he encountered with his keen intellect and boundless determination. This is another section Stoner writes about about Bezos' time at D.E. Shaw. Bezos seemed to love the idea of nonstop work. He kept a rolled-up sleeping bag in his office and some egg-crate foam on his windowsill in case he needed to bunk down for the night. The picture of our conquering hero is coming into focus. As Amazon grew, Bezos infected others with this relentlessness. In 1996, Amazon needed a new warehouse facility, and they found a building that was in a seedy part of Seattle. Again, here's what Stone writes. Parking was scarce and expensive. Nicholas Lovejoy suggested to Bezos that the company subsidized bus passes for employees, but Bezos scoffed at the idea. He didn't want employees to leave work to catch the bus, Lovejoy says. He wanted them to have cars there, so there was never any pressure to go home. One employee said about Bezos, If you're not good, Jeff will chew you up and spit you out. And if you're good, he will jump on your back and ride you into the ground. Amazon is a hard place to work. There was a New York Times article that came out in... August of 2015 that focused on this and it got a lot of attention, but maybe it should be a hard place to work. Maybe it should take a maniac to do the things that Jeff Bezos does. People who make a dent in the universe have to manage a balance between the dent that they're making and the effort that takes and the time that they can spend on everything else. Dent makers, maniacs, have less time for marriages and families. Charlie Munger's son, Charles Jr., said they saw the elder Munger at the lake house, but quote, the rest of the year we didn't see him much. Munger's daughter noted, my mother gave him an incredible amount of latitude to concentrate on his affairs and his career. Another dent maker is John Boyd, whose legacy on military action and strategy was maybe greater than any other 19th or 20th century figure, but his home life was a mess Robert Coram wrote that Boyd, quote, gave his work far greater priority than he did his family. The part of his legacy that concerns his family is embarrassing and shameful. Gene Kranz was a NASA flight director for the early Gemini and Mercury missions, and also for Apollo 11 and 13. And he wrote in his book that behind every great man is a woman, and behind her is the plumber, the electrician, the Maytag repairman, and one or more sick kids, and the car needs to go into the shop. Bezos is a maniac and a workaholic, and time is a zero-sum game. To make a dent, you have to marry the right person. You have to have a partner in crime that will support you while you go out and bang on the world. Bezos is one example of a person who married successfully. Bill Gates is another. Filmmaker Brian Koppelman credits his wife as being the other part of his whole. Anthony Bourdain says that his marriage is dysfunctional, but it works. Marriage is just a proxy for anything that you want to do in life. When one thing takes an hour, that's one less hour you have to make a dent in the universe. Bezos, like the rest of us, gets 168 hours each week. We all arrange the pieces differently, but we only get so many pieces to arrange. So what is the Bezos formula? Well, before we look at a formula for success, we should look at two quotes of warning. Warren Buffett said, we don't look at something like Amazon and try to beat them at their own game. They're better at that than we are, and we aren't going to try to out Bezos Bezos. That is, uh, don't focus on what Amazon does and try to beat them at that. Jason Fried said Bezos' success is very, very hard to achieve. Most likely you won't get there. The odds are stacked against you, and if you think that's the only way, you're going to be miserable. That is, don't run someone else's race. Don't fall for the finish line fallacy. When I go to the YMCA in our town and work out, I have to keep myself from looking at the speeds on the people for the people that are adjacent to me because I always get that competitiveness that I want to be faster than them. But that's running their race. That's making that mistake. At the start of The Everything Store, Brad Stone points out that the narrative fallacy, our tendency to tidy up stories, is a concern that Bezos had before the book. This is what Stone wrote. Toward the end of our hour we spent discussing this book, Bezos leaned forward on his elbows and he asked, how do you plan to handle the narrative fallacy? So let's not view the Amazon experience as prescriptive but descriptive. There's not the clear causation that we think. Even though disruption theory applies, it doesn't fully explain what happened to Amazon. Even though Bezos is a maniac, that doesn't mean working like a maniac will give you or anyone else Amazon's level of success. Even though Harvard MBAs missed Amazon, doesn't mean Harvard MBAs aren't intelligent and know what they're talking about. And even though Bezos had luck, it doesn't mean he was entirely lucky. So what can we actually take from this buffet table of ideas and apply to our own lives? I came up with five things. One, learn a lot, especially early on. Bezos was smart and inquisitive and in an environment that encouraged that. He had good genes and good schools and wasted neither. Second is get a good job out of college. Bezos' career at D.E. Shaw returned financial and personal capital. D.E. Shaw had none of the gratuitous formalities of other Wall Street firms, writes Brad Stone. So he had a great place to work, and he got experience, and he got some money. Number three is keep a low overhead, especially when starting out. Amazon employees flew coach and the benefits there were minimal. Number four is to be a maniac. Find something you can work like crazy on and work on it like crazy. And number five is get lucky. Every outcome we have has some measure of luck, and you'll need some of that if you want to make it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. If you want to see the other side of startups and technology startups that don't make it, you can go to Amazon, of all places, and search for my book, 28 Lessons from Startups That Failed. Thank you very much. Now why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave. And take your book with you.